look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli. My co-host is missing in action. So this is going to be a great show because he's nowhere to be found. Actually, he's away on vacation. So I guess we can give him a few days off. We've got a great show today. A new report finds that 85% of married women are not active in making long-term financial decisions. We're going to discuss that and the risk of gray divorce. That's on the on the rise in this country. And if you sold your home, don't report it to CRA. You may be penalized. Yeah, and if, and sorry, if you don't, you may be penalized. And that's a big concern. So we're going to talk to Nizam Sajani, who's an accountant and has his firm talking about the risks of that. And we'll also, uh, you know, use his brain to get some tax tips as we end off this uh, tax season and get ready for a 2018 tax year. <laughs> First, uh, need to talk about the Health Quality Council of Alberta and about a recent survey about family experiences with long-term care facilities. This is a big topic amongst our listeners, amongst my clients. Uh, we need to have a bit more conversation. So let's bring in the experts here. We've got Andrew Nooner. He's a CEO at the Health Quality Council of Alberta. Andrew, welcome to the show. Good morning, Faisal. Thank you. So how do, we, how, how do Albertans generally feel about long-term care facilities in general? Well, most Albertans feel pretty good, and clearly what we heard um, is that many Albertans want to express their thoughts and feelings on how they experience care in uh, long-term care services. And so when when they're feeling okay about this, so what do the long-term care facilities do well? And then let's take it to the other side. What could they improve on? Well, a, a lot of facilities uh, do all things well. Um, in, in what our report is really showing that there are also facilities at the other end of the spectrum. So what we see in the results of our survey is significant variation between those who perform well or consistently perform well and others. Okay, so, so when we look at, um, at some of the key things that people should take away from that recent survey and the reports, what should be the key things that people should take away from the, that survey? Well, the, the key things, if, if you're in a place where you're thinking about your future or I know we now have, we live in an age where seniors are looking after seniors yeah. and um, contemplating that, uh, you know, the next move might be into a facility where there is either 24 or 7 staff or other types of services, it's, it's really important to get a sense of what the perspective of those who currently live in these environments, how they experience care on a day-to-day basis. So this would be one way of informing uh, yourself on what the options might be and the kinds of things that would be important to you because uh, many of these facilities are quite different and they cater to different needs. And so... There are many of my clients, and like you said, seniors taking care of seniors or retirees taking care of retirees. Um, they're, they're, a lot of my clients are in what I call the sandwich generation or the open face 
sandwich uh, generation where they're taking care of uh, the generation above and the generation below or just the generation above. And so uh, for those who are looking out at facilities for their their loved ones, they're, they're doing their due diligence on this. What are some of the things you can give them as, a, as a words of advice or things to look out for when they're going through these facilities? Well, certainly in the report, we cover a number of dimensions of care. So we talk about staffing, the care of belongings, the environment. Um, We talk about the food, how information is provided to families, and and how facilities meet basic needs. So we cover a wide area of topics. Um, So this helps inform people, I think, firstly, just what, what, what might we expect in a facility what are the kinds of things we ought to look for? And I think it informs families and individuals uh, so that when they do make a site visit, um, they'll, they'll be able to ask the right questions, um, speak a bit of the language that we speak on a day-to-day basis, and, and speak with the managers of a facility and be able to ask the right questions. Now, some of the rumor mill I'm hearing from clients and some listeners of the show is that there's there's waiting lists for, especially in the urban areas, Edmonton, Calgary, for example. Do you are you finding that to be true? And if if they are waiting lists, what are the type of facilities that are, that the waiting lists are happening on, and what are the facilities that are not? So the the survey doesn't uh, contemplate waiting lists. And uh, I do hear the same things of waiting lists in urban areas, and that comes down to personal preference. I I know that uh, some of the more ethnic-based facilities will have different kinds of waiting lists for people who are interested in those kinds of environments. And then, of course, as we get more into the rural areas of the province, uh, whether there's a waiting list or not sometimes isn't isn't as big an issue because you don't have choices. You know, there's there's more limited choices once you yeah. start getting out into the rural environments. And in some places, there's only one choice unless people are prepared to relocate or travel. And, and typically, that's not the case as they want to be near their extended families and friends. In the entire survey, what part of it surprised you the most? Well, the positive surprise for us continually when we do these is the response rate. So uh, we get uh, roughly a 65% response rate, which represents 7,500 families responded. So anybody who uh, knows how surveys are, are done will recognize that that's incredibly high response rate. So that sends us a very, very clear message that uh, families um, have a lot to say, they have a lot to contribute, and they want their voice heard. And so for us, this is really a way of bringing together the voice of Albertans in this particular area, and that will help inform the providers of care in these uh, facilities to hopefully respond and to acknowledge areas where they can make improvements to meet the needs of the families who are responding. So when I was looking through some of the uh, the report, I saw that uh, some of the responses came out as follows. Only 18% of family members said there was always enough nurses or aides. What are your thoughts about that? So that always comes up as one of the um, consistent findings in our surveys that uh, residents would like to have more staff. And I, I know that's been an ongoing issue for the providers. Um, but we also acknowledge that in some places, facilities have managed to um, come up with creative solutions, how they engage uh, family members, how they engage with their volunteers, how um, how they organize their staffing around particular needs of the residents during the day. 
Um, but I think it's part of the um, human condition, if I can put it that way, that we'd always like to see more staff around. But it is something that certainly the providers need to keep an eye on, and they need to listen to the residents and and understand exactly what is it that they would like more of if there were nurses and aides available. If there was one piece of information you'd give to the government or to these uh, long-term care facility owners in regards to things that they should change and they should do it right away, what would it be? Well, I, I think the experience of the families needs to be incorporated into the standards. So the government this year passed legislation requiring all facilities to have a resident and family council. So that's a great place for those conversations to happen and to be more engaged with the families. And the work that we do is probably um, the most comprehensive piece of information that uh, is available that they can use as a starting point. So this is really um, about starting the right kinds of conversations with the family. It's about the leadership at the facility. It's about uh, being engaged with the families. Um, All those sort of very practical aspects. I don't think that anything enormously technically complicated. Uh, It's just having the discussions. And as we've noted in our survey, clearly there are facilities who are doing this really well. And those who may be struggling, um, now you see uh, what your neighbors and facilities in other areas are, how they're scoring. And perhaps uh, a bit of a visit in the conversation to other facilities that are doing well might be one of the things that I would consider if I recognize places where I wasn't doing as well as I could. You know, Andrew, I thank you for your your contribution today because I think that's the good spot to end it there because I think we need to benchmark these facilities or compare one to another and these types of surveys and more information being sent out on on how you can compare facility versus facility will help the public make those educated decisions. I want to thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks so much. That's Andrew Nooner, CEO at Health Quality Council of Alberta. Now, health is the biggest concern for many Canadians. They worry about these types of costs in the future. They worry about will their retirement savings be able to support the cost of of long-term care facilities, of their lifestyle today, and everything in between. And we're going to discuss that on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits and Beer. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, coming up next, do you have to tell the government if you sell your property? Is that a yes or a no? And will you have to pay a penalty if you don't? We'll talk about that and much more. You listen to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You listen to Faisal from 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And, you know, this is the time where people start to file their taxes, and this is the time where... They might have missed something. And one thing that people miss is telling the CRA if you sold your principal residence or any property at all. This is a fairly new rule. And so I think we need to have a bit of a conversation about this, especially when you're transitioning to or living in retirement. You're you're selling your principal residence, downsizing, right sizing, buying a, uh, a second vacation property, whatever it may be, you need to have more disclosure to CRA. And so we need to have our tax expert on, online here. And we do, Nizam Shajani. He's the senior partner with Shajani LLP, uh, Chartered Professional Accountants. Nizam, welcome to the show. Hi, Hazel. So I, I've got a question first. This is the first thing that most people ask me when I'm dealing with them one-on-one is, um, 
is this my principal residence? Because I might have a couple of homes, maybe one's a vacation property somewhere in Canada, and one's here in uh, in Calgary or in Alberta. What what actually does the government look like look at when it comes to what's your principal residence? So, in your principal residence, there there is some. There's about four areas that you need to qualify. Uh, one is that it needs to be a housing unit, leasehold interest. Uh, it can be really uh, anywhere that you're actually living. Uh, you need to own the property either alone or jointly with another person. Uh, you, you or your current former or former spouse, common law partner, or any of your children have to have lived it some time during the year. So that's important as well. And then you need to uh, designate the property as your principal residence. So, uh, yeah, this can include uh, many uh, different properties. It doesn't have to be the one that you're primarily living in, as long as you've lived it in it sometime during the year. Often when we're planning for taxes, we look at the uh, the sale during the year and try and strategize around which property we should use as the principal residence. And you can kind of decide that when you have actually sold it as well. Another important note is it doesn't necessarily need to be located in Canada. A lot of people have uh, uh, vacation properties outside of Canada, mm. and we have an option where we can even consider that as a principal residence as long as you fit all the other four, four criteria. Okay, I didn't know about the outside of Canada part. So uh, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, my friend. There's uh, uh, There are individuals who are selling their homes, or more importantly, they're going to be now moving out of their home now to rent it out and then buy another property or move into another property. Um, when do you have to declare that to uh, to CRA and when does it become no longer a principal residence, becomes a revenue property? And what about those taxes involved with that as well? So it's important to note that uh, when you do have a change in use, there is likely going to be a deemed disposition. So in CRA's mind is you basically stole that property. For instance, if you've been living in your property for a while, for a number of years, it's been your principal residence, it's always made sense as so, and then you decide move out, uh, move in uh, with perhaps your parents or someone else, uh, and uh, at that, and then rent your property out uh, from that moment on. So basically, when you've changed use, when it's become an income-generating property or rental property, there's a deemed disposition. So you need to do some sort of filing uh, with CRA. So there's different types of filings that you can do. Uh, uh, one is, uh, you know, go with the the standard where you've changed uh, use, so it's no, it's, it's income generating property. Let CRA know that you've disposed of that property under the new rules that we're going to talk about shortly, and uh, and uh, then whatever the fair market value is on the date that you've changed use to the date that you ultimately sell it in the future, there would be a potential capital gain or loss on that property. Yeah, that's so a that's, good. Uh, can I just jump in there really quickly? Because you mentioned the words fair market value, and this is a challenge for many people. Being in the stock market and being a portfolio manager, I can see what the value of an investment is right on my screen, or when I sell it, it's right there. Um, when you're looking at fair market value of a real estate property, because there's no market that gives you minute to minute or day by day pricing, how do you determine what the fair market value is? So it's easier to do this when you're actually having that uh, transaction, that change of use, to, sure. to do it at the same time. Uh, you can do some market analysis. Talk to a real estate agent. See if they can give you a market appraisal of the value itself. Uh, I mean, short of that, if you want to really dot your I's, cross your T's, you can actually uh, hire a uh, market appraiser, and they'll actually do a valuation for you as well. Uh, but it's uh, 
difficult to get that value. Uh, say you uh, you changed the use uh, five years ago, and now you want to sell your property. You only want to pay the capital gains tax from the date you changed use mm-hmm. to the date you sell the property. And if you don't have that information from the date you changed use in terms of the value of the property, things do get difficult with the calculation. Then we're using some estimates that might be subject to interpretation. CRA may start questioning your numbers if you don't have something from uh, you know, five years past. Yeah, that can be very challenging, again, not having that documentation. And, I, and unfortunately, there are many Canadians who, who just don't keep track of this stuff. They're just going on with life, and, and they, uh, they, they make a change of use, or they, they start to rent out their property or what have you, and then they, they don't realize that there is an actual deemed disposition to, to CRA. So what if you need help in that? Like you said, go get an appraisal, uh, go back in previous years. Um, what, if you want, what, what if you don't have that information in front of you? Uh, what's another step we could do? Well, uh, one thing that we're doing for a few of our clients as well is uh, filing an election called a 45-2 election. This is uh, something that you can file. You should be filing it when there's a change of use or the year there's a change of use. However, we've been uh, backfiling with for a lot of uh, our clients, and they've been going through just fine. Uh, and really what that election says is you deemed for there not to be a, a disposition or you elect for there not to be a change in use. And you can use that election for about three, four years and actually still claim your principal residence exemption. So it's a little tricky area as well. So definitely use a professional if you want to do that. So there's that one option. Another one is if you're, you know, down the future, just, you know, do your best, use best estimates. Sometimes you're able to engage a real estate agent who can go back in their MLS listings and try and find what our likely value would be. And then it would just be CRA trying to disprove you or, uh, or come up with a number, another number, and then we'd have to have a discussion at that point and maybe come up with some sort of agreement. And, and would, would property assessments from the city be uh, a next option if you can't get that information? You could use that. Uh, the thing is the, the property assessments are uh, not always in your favor. Uh, that is something that we would use as kind of a last resort. Okay. Uh, they don't always necessarily reflect the true value of a property. They're often off by uh, you know, a significant amount. So we prefer to use something like uh, uh, you know, comparables in an MLS-type listing as a, a comparable or at, at you know, going even better if we'd rather use an actual valuation. Uh, from a business valuator or a property valuator. Okay, so we're going to come back after the break, Nizam, and we're going to talk about, you know, the rule change that happened recently, uh, some of the penalties you can pay and so forth. But before I uh, we go to commercial break, I want to remind everybody that tax is probably one of the biggest expenses you're going to have as you go through retirement. And reducing your tax bill or managing tax is very important. And how do you use that strategy along with the uh, the five-pillar investment strategy approach to profit in markets and protect you when markets are pulling back? We're going to discuss all that on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So please give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about how you, if you sold your property, you could be paying thousands of dollars in penalties to the CRA. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And we were talking before the break about uh, potential penalties you could have, about thousands of dollars, if you do not tell CRA or Revenue Canada, as they used to be called, 
if you sold your property. I'm I'm joined with uh, Nizam Shajani. He's the senior partner with Shajani LLP Charter Professional Accountants, and he's going to walk through some of the rules that have changed recently uh, and, and what we need to do about that. Nizam, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay, so Nizam, here here's what the the uh, education I think is needed for the for our listeners and for for people who are going through this situation this year uh, uh, or last year. Um, there has been some changes in what we need to let uh, CRA know. So let's start off with that. Give us the overview of what the new rules are around reporting the sale of your home to the CRA. All right. Uh, so this actually started back uh, a few years ago, um, and even in October 2016. Finance Minister Bill Morneau, he announced that they would be taking measures to address some sort of abuses uh, that they perceived around the principal residence exemption. So uh, in their March 2017 budget, they introduced these changes in terms of reporting requirements. And then it's interesting to note that in uh, June of 2017, CRA issued a news release that they called the Government of Canada cracks down on tax cheating in real estate transactions. (laughs) And they underlined that between April 2015 and March 2017, they completed over 21,000 files uh, related to real estate, and uh, they assessed over $329 million in previously unreported income and applied $17 million in penalties. Now, the reason that this is important is kind of looking at the timeline of things. They are thinking that there is some sort of abuse behind people claiming their principal residence exemption. So now they've come up with new reporting requirements. And this we're finding this is throwing a lot of people off. They don't seem to be aware of this or these new requirements. And so uh, uh, when we ask people, well, they're, we're filing their tax returns now, uh, okay, did you sell your principal residence? What were the values uh, that you sold it out? They're very confused because rightly so, there is no taxes owing if you sell your principal residence. However, uh, as of 2016, you have to declare that on your personal tax return. If you don't declare that on your personal tax return, you're subject to penalties. And so the penalties go up. They start at about $100 a month, and they go up to a maximum $8,000. And if you don't declare uh, the uh, the sale of your principal residence on your tax return, it could be open to uh, audit uh, indefinitely. So this is so the this big is change. That we need to, yeah, Nisa, this, this is, is a big, big change. change I think we need to be, be aware of that. Before we were on the honor system of your principal residence is your principal residence and you don't really have to worry about it. Now it's it's on the honor system, but you still have to disclose. Is that the big change? That is the big change. Okay. So uh, as of 2016, you have to fill out uh, Schedule 3, uh, for uh, which is a statement of capital gains and losses. Uh, if you sold your principal residence in 2016, if you sold it in 2017 or later years, not only do you have to fill out that Schedule 3, but you also have to fill out a form called a T. 2091 or 2091 IND. So this is a designation of property as a principal residence by an individual. So uh, if, if, you, if you miss those forms, you, again, you're subject to those penalties. So we do need to make sure those are addressed. This is, this is something that I think people have to realize that um, and if, I'm generally speaking, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll speak about your and my 
uh, relationship on on your business because you your company does my taxes and you send me a note saying hey have you sold any real estate in 2017 when you did my 2017 taxes and I say yay or nay and so that I, I'm I'm confident maybe I'm I'm making a big assumption here that most professional accountants are doing the same thing and asking their clients about that so let's take that as an assumption but there are many do-it-yourself tax uh, preparers, meaning that they're doing it for their own family or they're doing it for friends online and they're using that, that software or whatever and they may not um, answer those questions. I'm assuming, again, that the, the software asks you those questions, but they may just exempt that or not put that in there. So this is a big, big change that people have to have to be aware about. Now, let's go over those penalties for so people understand um, the thousands of dollars again. Let's make sure they understand that part. Okay, so if, if you don't report, uh, you're, you're subject to losing your principal revenue exemption. So a lot of people have owned their property for a number of years. Uh, so if you can imagine the value of, uh, of the cost of your property versus the amount that you sold it for may be quite high. You don't want that to be, to be subject to tax. So if, uh, if you want to continue on that not being subject to tax and claim your principal residence exemption, you now have to fill out these forms. If you don't, you're looking at penalties of $100 per month, uh, and it goes to a maximum of $8,000. So uh, if, you are, uh, if you do miss that, you, you have the opportunity to late file, uh, and uh, I think uh, CRA will allow the late filings. However, they will likely charge you that, uh, that penalty. And I think this is where tax strategy comes into place when when individuals or families have multiple properties. Remember in the last the last segment we were talking about uh, what principal residence is and and what you can claim it as and so forth and this exemption that you're allowed. Uh, this is where strategy comes into play. So Nizam, maybe you can give a bit more information on when you're sitting down with a client, they say, I'm, sell- I'm selling my property or I've sold my property, um, how to claim what as principal residence or what as rental or vacation property. How do you, how do you, what's the strategy you look at or what are some of the key things that you look at when you're talking about those types of issues? When we usually see a sale of a property, we want, want to figure out, okay, uh, can we claim principal residence exemption. So we go through criteria that we had discussed earlier, those four criteria. And if they fall within those four criteria, then we want to uh, strategize, okay, do we want to claim this sold property as principal residence and not pay any tax on it this year? Or do they have another property that would uh, be better suited for the principal residence? Because you can only have one principal residence at a time. So if you're you know, claiming one, you you can't claim the other. If you're uh, and if you're switching back and forth, each time there's a deemed disposition of the other as well. So there may be some filings that you have to do to coordinate that as well. So really, it's it's a it's a mathematical calculation. We want to figure out what works best for our particular client in terms of uh, paying the least amount of tax. And you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot where you claim uh, you know a principal residence for a property that uh, may not have as large a gain in it as another property as well. So you want to do your due diligence. You want to do the calculations to figure that out as well. And I think this is where people leave a lot of money on the table or 
give too much to CRA potentially uh, when they're looking at just the one transaction of that property. They're not looking at the, I call it the pan tax situation, tax across everything, because they may have investments, they may have uh, real estate holdings, they may have um, uh, other types of, of income coming their way. And so do you take the tax now? Do you take it to a later, this property versus that property, today versus next year? Those types of, of, of conversations can save thousands of dollars to your bottom line, which means more money in your pocket. And I think that's the strategy that people need to do. And and when you're over the age of, of 65 receiving old age security, those types of gains can definitely claw back on your old age security. One of the biggest pet peeve of my clients and uh, my listeners are, are, are is that situation. So I think not only knowing the numbers, but having a strategy around it, which requires potentially, I think, having a, a professional working with you, don't you think? Absolutely. It always uh, 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 makes a significant difference if you have somebody who knows the rules, not only just the rules, what they are, uh, you know, what they have been traditionally, but when there are changes in rules as well, uh, your professional needs to be aware of those changes. Yeah, and I think that's where uh, the professional comes into play. So if they want to get in touch with you and your, and your firm, how do they do that? Uh, they can give us a call, 403-209-1190, or they can find us on the web at shijani.ca. Okay, so and if, you, if you're driving or anything like that, just give us a call or contact us. We'll be more than happy to connect you with, with Nizam and his team. Nizam, I want to thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure. That was Nizam Shijani. He is the senior partner with Shijani LLP, Chartered Professional Accountants. And now the tax is the big thing. We're going to talk about our tax strategy, minimizing tax, maximizing your portfolio growth while minimizing risk on that as well. So it's a multiple approach to having a successful retirement. We're going to talk about this on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can go on our website at morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Now, coming up after the break, did you know that there are more and more people over the age of 50 are getting divorced and that can impact their entire financial future? We're going to talk about that and much more on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And before the break, we were talking about taxes and we were talking about how long-term care facilities are are having a bit of a review by individuals, and that's all leading up to a couple of things that are that are a biggest trend, I think, here in North America, and that is the people over the age of 50 uh, are getting divorced at a fastest pace, probably since 1990. And this is the uh, this is some recent information coming out to the public, saying this is what's happening. And and when you go through what we call uh, a gray divorce, we uh, we need to understand what are the issues, concerns, and we have Sharon Numero. She's a certified divorce financial analyst with Alberta Divorce Finances. Sharon, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the trend is up. I've seen that in my practice. More and more people as a certified divorce financial analyst are coming to me uh, when they're over the age of 50 after 20, 30 years of marriage. Um, are, I'm assuming you're seeing it in your practice as well. So tell me a bit about what's what's been the change or trend that you've seen anecdotally in your practice. Yeah, uh, I would agree with you. We've seen uh, so many people, uh, never mind, uh, you know, 25 years of marriage, but we, we're seeing so many people lately married 40 years, 42, 45 years. And so, you know, for somebody... 
uh, not in that position to relate. If you can imagine, you've spent your whole life pretty much with somebody planning for retirement, planning to have enough money when you can't care for yourself, and then somebody decides uh, we're divorcing. And realistically, I, I would say not even the financial side, but the emotional, the logistical, and all of those other issues are the hugest challenge for, uh, for that sector of people divorcing. Now, Sharon, I've always said when there is a divorce that happens, the both parties have a financial hit to them. It's not going to be the same as it used to be. But a recent UBS Global Wealth Management report came out saying a majority of married women, 56% of them, still leave major investing and financial uh, decisions to their spouse. This is going to be, it's not new. It's been there for a long time. And so when uh, the impact, I believe, is more to the women when they don't understand the situation. And so let's start off with what steps can you actually take to understand what's going on in your family's financial life? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really, really good point because as big as an impact as that has for younger women who are uninvolved, for older women, I mean, imagine, you know, you're well into your 60s. You've never banked online. You've never, you, you probably don't even know what your portfolios are combined or comprised of. And all of a sudden, you're on your own. You have to manage your money, et cetera. So when I work with uh, clients, uh, I tell them, you know, we got to start at the beginning. You know, some of them don't even have bank cards. So realistically, it's it's almost like, Let's take baby steps to get you there, because otherwise, if they try and look ahead, it's so overwhelming. Most of them describe it as trauma that they really have to get through. And it's very, very difficult. And it's like building a financial foundation for wherever you start. Some of them are well more advanced and understand their finances and some are like you said back to the basics so that that foundation what are some of the key things that on average that in your experience that that family that that financial foundation needs to be understood what are the key things that you see um that they need to to kind of grasp and hold on to yeah so i mean the, the first thing that people need to look at is you know are each of them going to be okay financially moving forward right i mean if every retiring couple you know had wealth it's a lot less of a concern but especially for those couples where you know the challenge is going to be will they have enough money so realistically the first step uh and it's much easier if a couple can be amicable but the first step is let's try and compile what you need to live on every month. And then let's take a look at what you have. Let's work with your financial advisor to see what your 50% of the portfolio is going to provide. And then, and only then, can we determine what life is going to look like. Because the most common question I get from older women is, you know, can I buy a condo? Where am I going to live? And Really, they're just very, very scared. So you you have to break it down into little pieces. But the first step is, what's life going to look like? So I try and work closely with uh, the financial advisors. And for a lot of the clients, they've never done a budget. 
They don't yeah. even, especially, especially as you were saying, women, they don't even know what they spend. So it's, a, it's an overwhelming task that we really try and assist them with um, in really small steps, assuming that they're in an emotional place where they're ready to go through that exercise. And I find that one of the biggest challenges for, for individuals is that to, to figure out where you are today in order to understand where you can go tomorrow. I think that's very difficult for many, especially if they don't know uh, their, their spending habits or what's really going out on the bank accounts, what's, what's sticking in there and so forth. And I think when you go through, a, we call it a budget, but uh, there's two types of budgets. One's an, a forecast maybe I'll spend this amount. And then the other one is actually going back and looking at what was really spent and what were you living off of. And those t- sometimes I feel that being a biggest um, obstacle, a biggest challenge for people is um, they forecast a lot lower when they're looking at their lifestyle, but when they go back on their bank records, credit card statements, lines of credit statements, um, they're spending a lot more. Do you find the same thing? hundred percent. I mean, you, you would see the same thing that we do, and, and family lawyers say the same thing, which is great to see your budget. Now let's add 15% because everyone uh, underestimates what they spend. So absolutely, we tell clients get six months of nowadays most people uh, are using their bank cards and their credit cards. So get six months of each of your statements, and let's go through and categorize everything, and then let's look at uh, how much you actually spent. People are, are shocked most often. Yeah, and I, I think this is, this is a lesson or a learning outcome for everybody. If you're, which regardless of gender or age, if you are not involved on the day-to-day spending of you or, or monitoring the day-to-day spending within your family, now is the time to understand that. Go back over the last six months and just get an understanding of it. You don't have to use it for anything if you're not going through a divorce or you're not doing planning and so forth. But it's a good it's a good pulse check. It's no different than checking your blood pressure. You just need to know that things are okay and you understand where where everything lies. And so when we transition that to more of a, a divorce conversation, what are the special dangers inherent in uh, in uh, gray divorce? Um, I mean, some of the the dangers, uh, people, you know, I guess the biggest obstacle is, you know, most people are about to stop working or have already stopped working in in gray divorce. And so the biggest, I guess, danger is um, thinking that you're going to continue to carry on uh, uneducated about what you spend, what you have. And not really understand because, you know, some some people going through gray divorce find that they have to go back and work part time. Some find that they can't stay in that uh, beautiful luxury condo that the two of them were living in. And so the assumption that, well, we think we're both going to be OK um, is a pretty, pretty dangerous place to go. As much as younger people need to do a review, it's even more important with older couples because, realistically, they don't have any of those years, uh, like I did when I went through my separation, to regenerate uh, their assets. Yeah, I think that's, that's the key thing. And they're, one of the biggest fears is, do I have to go back to work? I think that's right. one that comes out. Do you, do you find, and you, can, you don't have to give me an exact number, but what percent mm-hmm. of your clients going through grade divorce do you feel should maybe go back and get some additional income or go back full-time work just to make sure things are okay? 
Yeah, I, I would say shockingly, probably only 20 to 25 percent find that they're in a position where working a little bit longer, even though I was thinking of retiring or getting something part time would really, really help make things easier. Now, you also have to consider that if I'm 65 and I've never worked, I'm potentially not that marketable. So, but probably 20 to 25% find themselves in that position. And that, you know, could be just the clientele that I see, et cetera. But in my experience, uh, and, you know, a good chunk of the rest of them, probably 50%, they don't have to, but they have to uh, get a very good handle on, uh, on what they're spending and what they're going to have uh, to go forward with. That's a very interesting way you put that, and I think anecdotally in my practice I see the same thing. I think 25% of the people who are going through gray divorce, they're going to be okay because they have enough wealth. Then you take another right. big chunk, 50% of the people will have to get a good handle on that financial foundation, understanding what goes in, what goes out, and their overall financial situation and their plan so they can make sure that their lifestyle doesn't retire when they do. And then there's yeah, about 25% exactly. of the people who, who have to go and look for other ways of generating some revenue or income so they can live their lifestyle. And that's, that's a, if you think about it, that could be a flip of a coin. You could be either okay or not. And I think that's where the analysis comes into play. Now, you're a certified divorce financial analyst. And and again, I'm one too. And I keep on saying this. You need an analyst on board to help you with this. It cannot be done just going through the legal process itself. How important is a CDFA in a gray divorce? Even, Even more important than for anybody else. Because the piece where you're trying to figure out what life is going to look like. Can I still go to Phoenix every winter? You know, can I still do some of the things I'd really like to do? Uh, I had a a lady come in the other day and she said, well, my kids told me I have to get rid of the condo. (laughs) So my response is, as it always is, and what basis did they have for telling you that? Well, they just said, mom, we don't think you can afford it. And, you know, we did, we did a, a, a review and, you know, she, she can absolutely stay in her condo, but you don't know that until, and you know, the other piece that we have to keep in mind is uh, some people are very frugal with their money and some people are very careless with their money. Yeah. And you're not just going to change overnight, but in gray divorce, sometimes that's the only way to move forward. Uh, and that's very, very difficult. You know, Sharon, I want to thank you so much for joining us today with some great information and, and, and come again next time so we can add on to more to these types of topics. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Faisal. You're listening to Sharon Numero uh, and uh, a certified divorce financial analyst with Alberta Divorced Finances. And and we also are doing a seminar about retirement and protecting your retirement on, on topics like this. So you want to join us on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. And that's uh, uh, you can also receive all of our past segments on morethanmoneyradio.com or get them delivered directly to you by searching for the More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. And that's it for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.